You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast with Pastor Rick Francis. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. It's a wonderful Palm Sunday, and I thought, well, we're continuing in the, in the series on The Cure, based from the book, The Cure, by John Lynch, and uh, just wonderful, wonderful. Today we're looking at two gods. Hmm? Two gods? Okay. Hang in there. You'll, you'll catch it here. Our scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. Wake up. That's, that's just too good. I can't believe anybody could sit there and not explode off their chair after. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we so, so thank you for the record of your truth. We thank you for those who walked with you and was moved and inspired by the Holy Spirit and was able to to put down into print the very things that we treasure today that help us understand who we are when everything else around us tells us a different story. I pray today that there would be a release from heaven to earth, uh, uh, just a transforming grace to believe the truth of what you say is true about us. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up in the story of the cure. You remember that uh, our guy had been at the room of good intentions, and there everybody's wearing a mask, and and he got so frustrated that for for a second it was okay, but then it just was so artificial and it was so phony, and all, and he got frustrated, so he he went and chose the other path instead of the path of pleasing God. He now went back to the fork in the road and chose the path of trusting God. And as he was on that path of trusting God, he came to the room of grace. And in in the analogy, uh, the room of grace was very very similar, a little less ornate than the room of good intentions, but there was an authenticity there. And there he met his friend, the loud guy who not only had bankruptcy, but he had back pain as well. And he was the one that said, is that all you got? When he was sharing his own struggles. So now in the night, in the room of good intentions, our our young person, our young man, leaves the room of good intentions and he's going and he's heading back to the, I mean, he leaves the room of grace and he's heading back to the room of good intentions. And there's his loudmouth friend who, who realizes it. And the guy says, how'd you know? Well, when you laugh, someone yelled, there's a runner. And I figured it might be you. <laughs> well, how'd you know? The... Oh, I've been on this path many times. Uh, he, he has visited the room of good intentions and gone back that way. So now he's, now he's coming back. 
Without a word, he turned and I followed. After a while, back on the path, winding toward the coast, I asked, why did I do that? Why did I come back here to the room of good intentions? That first day in the room of grace, I thought I'd never see life the same. You don't see life the same. But the stories we tell ourselves can run deep. It's one thing to have a profound experience. It's quite another to kill a lie that's served you a long time. Especially a lie you've used to cope. Until you see God right, you'll keep going back there. As we, if you remember, when we, when we have the two chairs, with chair number one be the place where we rest in the presence of the Lord and we receive from the Lord and the Lord just fills us and there is that, that oneness with him that we're resting in. We understand who we are. We understand that we're a son and daughter of the Most High and we just soak in his love and his presence in chair number one. In chair number two, somehow we get duped into believing that there's something that we've got to do. Usually in chair number two, it's kind of more identified with the room of good intentions. However, in chair number two, when we're in chair number two, we can have a, a visitation of the Lord, which kind of escorts us into chair number one, back into the room of grace. But it's not a habitation, it's a visitation, and quickly we find ourselves back in chair two. Okay? And that's, what, that's what's being expressed here as they, as they go on. It's the stories we tell ourselves can run deep. It's one thing to have a profound experience. That'll get us out of chair two into chair one for a moment. It's quite another to kill the lie that keeps us going back to chair two that's served us a long time. Until we see God right, you'll keep going back there. What's that supposed to mean? There are two gods the one we see through our shame, and the one who is actually God. Hmm. Okay, I, I think I'm tracking here. So think back to what you told me about Jesus with his arm around you. Did you believe it? Yeah, I guess I'm starting to, but, but what, he asked. Well, when I picture it later, his arm is around me, but he's not smiling. He's got this look of pity. There's no joy. It's like a friend comforting a dying patient, someone who's sick and never gets any better. And there's never anyone else around. He's disappointed in me. But he loves me enough to keep holding on. I know he won't leave me. I just didn't think it would turn out like he hoped. Ah, my friend, you're still believing in the God your shame created, the God you've learned to fear. This is also very hard to wrap my head around, I said. Everything I've ever been taught, everything I've ever experienced tells me you get what you put in. 
So when I fail, it seems only right I should get less of God, which makes me want to be better. I want to put more in so I'll get more out. Then I get down on myself when I take him for granted or when I don't do right or when I care about something more than him. That seems like what he wants. If I were God, that's what I'd want out of people. He laughed. That seems pretty self-righteous, doesn't it? You're saying it's not? Let me say it again. You have as much God as you're going to get. He lives in you. You are in him. How much closer do you want than that? Every moment of every day, fused with you, there he is. He never moves, never covers his ears when you sin, never puts up a newspaper, never turns his back. He's not over on the other side of your sin, waiting for you to get it together so that you can finally be close. It's incredible, don't you think? That's why they call it good news. Then why doesn't it feel like it? I blurted, then sighed. I live with me. It feels like I'm playing a game of denial to believe he's not disappointed with me. I know he loves me, but where's the accountability to live this life for him? The woods thinned and clear. The grassy dunes were in front of us, eventually given way to the sea. It was all lit up by the moon, nearly clear as day. I couldn't believe I didn't notice it earlier. My new friend looked at it all thoroughly, like he was trying to find another way of explaining what I was missing. After a moment, he turned back. The goal is not to change me. I'm already changed. The goal is to mature. When I depend on the new creature I've been made into through the work of Jesus at the cross, I begin to live healthier, more free of sin, more free to love. I learn to believe all his power, love, and truth and goodness already exists in me right now, even on my worst day. But if people believe this, won't they take advantage of God? Yeah, I imagine they would, he responded except they no longer want to do such a thing. They are new creations. God lives in them to encourage, correct, even rebuke. The reason people rebel is not because they've trusted grace or choose to live out of their new identity. It is the very opposite. It is moralism, the law of religious practice and thought that keeps them trying to get away with something. Wow. I've never heard anyone say that. Look, Jesus says we're, we really are new people, completely righteous. Jesus became sin so that we might be righteous. Jesus didn't become theoretical sin. He actually became real sin 
in every possible way that sin can be sin. And if that corollary holds holds true, then we didn't become theoretically righteous. We became real righteous in every possible way that righteous can be righteous. That didn't happen to anyone before Jesus. Now we're free. But it isn't the freedom to get away with stuff, to give ourselves permission to have three glasses of wine instead of one. No comment about your wine intake. It isn't freedom to care less or to walk the tightrope of right and wrong without remorse. The motive is of a righteous heart is not to get away with anything. The motive of the righteous is to be loved and to love. That's what we've all been wanting for all of history. That's the freedom Jesus died for. We can now love each other well because it's who we really are. Then it was silent for a while. Just the waves and the moon and a soft wind. Then the horizon faded from blue-black into purple and finally into orange as the sun peaked over the waves. We walked again together all the way back to the room of grace. Wow. I like our time with Uncle Ricky reading sermon time stories. (laughs) So that's the backdrop that we look at at what we've been looking at. Living a life from chair one, a life of rest, a life of identity, a life of knowing how deeply and richly we are loved by Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And learning how to live and minister from there. I don't know how you guys have been processing this, but I I have these encounters where I'm in chair one and when I'm there and I'm receiving, it's like I'm there and I get inspired and and, and I get a direction and for me to seem like it's able to, to happen the way I think it should happen, I slip over into chair two. Because in chair two, it's up to me. Now I've, I've got a vision. I've got an inspiration. Now we're going to go tear it up. We're going to go do it. We're going to do it. And you're going to do it this way. And boom, boom, boom. And, and sometimes we get into our choleric mode and we just run over everybody like a bulldozer for the sake of the vision and the inspiration that we get in chair one. And, and then when we're over here doing this with our own energy, although it's inspired energy, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a real sense of enthusiasm because God revealed something to us that we're going at it, and, but we're doing it in our own energy, in our own strength. It's not long before we hit the wall. <sighs> Chair two is a place where we'll have a visitation. Chair one is a place that we get to have a habitation. We get to live with the glorious presence of the Lord. That's, that's sign me up for that. So as we look at today, it's your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. 
So take a good look at yourself this morning. And we'll be able to tell what you think is true about God. Hmm. Nothing you believe and depend upon is more freeing than this single truth. You are no longer who you were, even on your worst day. The farthest you can fall on your biggest day of failure is a much-loved son, a much-loved daughter of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. Trusting and leaning upon Christ in you is the very source and it's the very means by which we have strength, joy, healing, and peace. We call it justification theologically when we're made right with Christ. When we, when we go from understanding that our sin has separated and our sin has caused us to be other than what God originally intended and we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness and to come into our hearts and we move from, from a state of not knowing him to a state of knowing him. And sometimes that happens in a split second and sometimes that's a, that's a progression. And the reason why sometimes it gets kind of uh, difficult for some people to know the moment when they were born again was because they, they had this living relationship with a, with a God that they're getting further and further discovery, further and further revelation of how wonderful he is, which allows the trust level to increase. So there's something of us out of our fear base and our shame base that, yeah, we do not want to go to hell. Anybody want to go to hell today? That's, that's something. No, no, no. So it's real easy for us to say, yes, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. I'd like to go to heaven. And it doesn't take a whole lot of understanding of him to do that. But when it gets into trusting at deeper levels, there has to be a greater revelation, a greater understanding of who he is and who he says you are. The problem that he, that he has in competing with who we think we are is that we've been told since we were a little baby who we are. Our parents have told us or someone who was our guardian Someone who had responsibility for us was telling us who we are. And depending on their level of health, they're either giving us an accurate understanding of who we are or they're giving us a very inaccurate understanding of who we are. And so as that continues to progress and develop, the enemy is not neutral. He is constantly trying to influence anyone who's in a position of authority, anyone who has influence over us. The enemy is trying to use them to communicate to us that we're not enough, that there's something wrong with us, that there's something fundamentally wrong with who I am. And so when we look at this, it's like, oh, my stars. We often in chair two really invest in our own sanctified self-effort to become who we think we're supposed to be. We read the scriptures of what God says who we are and we think that that is what we're supposed to aim to because we know that's not who we are. And so therefore we've got to use and muster up all our energy within us to try to become a better Christian, a better person. So we, we don't realize it. Instead of realizing, you know what? I'm fused with Christ Jesus. 
there has been that union of a new creation that took place the very moment I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and I invited him to be my savior. And at that moment, there was a bond with him and a rebirth within me. A lot of times they, they talk about, when we're trying to talk about transformation, metamorphosis, we use the old caterpillar and the butterfly uh, from nature kind of illustration. But they tell me in, in the DNA of a, a caterpillar is the DNA of a butterfly. So that if you could extract from the caterpillar its DNA, you would see that it's a butterfly. That's who it is. That is who it is in its DNA and its essence. It's a butterfly. But at the moment, it can't fly. But does that make it any less a butterfly? No. What it needs to do is mature. It needs to develop and grow. Because we have the scriptures that tell us that we're butterflies, the enemy constantly points out to how we're walking on all these little legs and we haven't got one inch off the ground. And he says, and you call yourself a butterfly? You can't even get off the ground. You're nothing. And we look and we look at ourselves and we say, well, that's true. Something must be wrong. I must not be a butterfly. And that's how the deception goes. And when we agree with the evil one, when we believe what he says is true about us, he has legal permission to torment us in those areas. And many, many butterflies, even after they go through the metamorphosis and they come out of their cocoon, they still don't realize that they're butterflies. The enemy does such a solid reversal of our identity in our wounds that we're not able to believe the truth about what God says. And so we believe the lie. And that's the whole thing of Romans chapter 1. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Hmm. That's so sad. If I follow the first path, where I try to do it, and I'm trying to work on my self-sanctified effort, I'm trying to change who, from who I was to who I should be. So that's where all my energy, all, all my sanctified effort is to try to go from who I was to who I think I should be. If I follow a second, I'm maturing into who I already am. I'm maturing into who I already am. In the first, I'm working toward becoming righteous. In the second, I'm already righteous, made right by God the moment I believed. I'm just maturing in my understanding of righteousness. See, there's a season early on, slide number three, when I believed I have been changed into a new creature. I am fused with Jesus. And boy, those were glory days, weren't they? You remember when, when you just got saved, you just believed the gospel, and all of a sudden everything was new, just amazing. And, and from there, you're fused with Jesus. We know that he loves me, and he enjoys me all the time. He is maturing me in his ways, in his time. Mm. 
I can trust and receive love. That's a good place to be. But it's amazing how quickly the enemy assaults us when we're in that spot. (laughs) Because most of the rest of my time, I believed I changed in a legal sense, but not really. Hmm. He is usually disappointed with me. He expects me to at least try to fix myself. I can't be trusted or trust anyone else. And that's sad. That's a cruel joke when when we think the perception is that we're supposed to belof and pretend that we're righteous. We're supposed to just put on a a pretense of righteousness. That's the room of good intentions. That's what we try to put on a mask of righteousness, secretly knowing that we aren't, only eventually to discover we actually were all along. There are going to be so many Christians, they're going to be so befuddled when they realize that what God says is really true. They're not going to, they know it in their head and they see it in the word, but they have so many things that can unhinge it in their own personal life, but eventually they'll find we truly do have the righteousness of Christ. And that has to do with how we carry shame. Shame. It whispers, it, it's constantly speaking to us, saying you'll, you'll always be defined by what you did or what was done to you. It mocks us. Shame wants us to desperately perform for acceptance that we don't even believe we deserve. Isn't that crazy? How much effort and energy we put into trying to earn acceptance when at our very heart we don't believe we deserve to be accepted. That's the power of shame. That's what Jesus came to kill. And when we believe that, we form a fake God. It's a God who's birthed out of our shame and we relate to him out of our shame, not out of who he says he is. Not out of the reality of the true eternal God, but out of the God that's that's manufactured by our shame. Sure, our sins are forgiven, but I still keep failing, so I must be a failure. And at least before we came to Jesus, we had an excuse. We didn't know him, so we knew we were a loser. But now that we know him and we're a loser, it's like we're without excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get compared, it's competition, you're not as pretty as so-and-so, or you're not as strong, you're not as fast. I don't know what it was like in your neighborhood, but we knew who was the fastest kid on the block. Yeah. Who could run the fastest, who could ride their bike the fastest. 
And if you wanted to ride faster than somebody else, then you better invest in a better bicycle with more gears. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, Ann. Trying to make an application to this and to, to bring it down, gosh, don't have time. But you, you really just don't want to go out and play in the snow, do you? Okay, let, let's, let me take a, a little extra time here, but apply it to sexual sin. Because it seems like sexual sin is one of the things that the evil one uses to shame us more than any other sin. Seems to be like his favorite place to attack human beings is with our sexuality because we're made in God's image, male and female, and he loves to distort the image of God and pervert it. So how can we, how can we apply this? When, when we're looking at, at the room of good intentions and everything else, if we look how we usually approach, what the usual approach is to sexual sin, sexual temptation, it's, it's, it's all about the focus is how to, to react better in the moment of temptation, how to react better in, in the moment that we get tempted. So we have thousands of tips and techniques that are laid out for us to keep us from acting out. While helpful, this approach oftentimes misses the very point and the essence of what's going on. We didn't reach this moment of temptation randomly. We got there by gradually distorting our view of God way back there. Those prevention tools made sense until we allowed ourselves to entertain a thought that would eventually lead us into a crisis. So all the tools make sense. They all sound great, whatever they are, you know, turn your head, have a hap, take it, capture it, take, flip a rubber band, slap, you know, you know, all the different techniques that they have is fine until you're in the midst of it. Because here's the reality, <laughs> we no longer want them to help. Once we have a distorted view of God and of ourselves, then there comes a moment in temptation that we don't really want those techniques to help. Now we're way past the wanting them to do right. We're way past our heart of wanting to do right. The problem is actually rooted back when our course was fundamentally altered. Our problem is our distorted picture of God. And we're going to look at some of these distortions. Here's five beliefs about God that the enemy gets distorted that keeps us in all sorts of, of misconduct, all, all sorts of behavior problems. Addictions, whether they're sexual or non-sexual, those kind of sins get us. Number one, God can't satisfy me as much as this sin. And the enemy will say, well, when's the last time you really felt this wonderful? Does God do that for you? No. I've always been this way. I don't believe you're powerful enough to change that. So we go on our track record, our history, the things that have been said and done to us, and then the consequences that come as a result of that. Number three, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Number four, I don't believe God has been fully, fully good to me. 
He's been a little good, but he hasn't been fully good. Number five, I'm going to feel like a failure anyway. I might as well as enjoy it. Mm -hmm. These are the root beliefs behind the permission that we give ourselves to fail. Wow. They're formed from picturing God separated from us. I've always known this, taught it from Discipleship 101, that the greatest deterrent to sin is a conscious awareness of his presence. When you're aware of his presence and you're fellowshipping with his presence, there's really no temptation to sin. When you're in chair number one and you're experiencing and resting in him, you you don't get an impure thought. The enemy can't introduce all sorts of things. I thought, man, if we, if we could just take this template and put it on somebody and say, okay, from this moment on, you will always be aware that God is with you. Why doesn't that happen? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Lord Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in you and you are in me. In the prayer of John 17, just so amazingly talk about the oneness of of Christ in us and us in Christ, but yet the enemy knows for us to not want, he's got to distort our understanding of God. That he's really not as good as we say he is. He's really not as present as our doctrine states he is. And he really doesn't care for me. And he, he, he can care for Ada Margaret because she's 91. But me, there's something wrong with me. I got a defect. He starts that in ways that are not really sinful in and of themselves. But when you get made fun of when you're a teenager because you're losing your hair, what do you think about God, the one who created you, who gave this beautiful black wavy hair to David Graham? (laughs) You know, and at, at 16, 17, my hair is receding. And the enemy takes that and says, you really can't trust God. The day he was passing out the hair gene, something caught his attention and you weren't as important as he, as whatever it was. And so it it starts at a foundational level of trying to erode your ability to trust God. Can you really, really trust God? Does he really, really care? Or is there something fundamentally wrong? And that's why he can't give you hair whatever it is. He could give you it if you weren't quite broken, if you weren't just a little off. And the enemy will take that and use that and develop that into it's got a system that generates inside of us. And we believe the lie. 
Doesn't matter how much we hear the truth. Somewhere in our heart, we believe it's a lie. And when we believe this, the enemy knows that he can work and he can attack because we're picturing God as separated from us. And it's only a matter of time and opportunity and our particular area of vulnerability before we fail. And that's why this is a big deal. That's why this is foundational, transformational, and it's an absolute must that we believe the truth and get through the lie. Paul says, and if you go see Paul, the Apostle of Christ, the movie that's out now, I saw it this week, and when he says this, he's, you know, in the movie, he's in prison, and Luke's there, and he's writing down and stuff, and he says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't use that language, but Paul's walking in a cell, and he says, now there's no condemnation for us in Christ. And when he said it, and, and he also, he quotes, you know, he, he shares the essence of, of 1 Corinthians 13, and the presence of God just fills the theater. And it's just one of those holy moments, and it's just like, it's true. It's true. I, I heard Paul say it. Of course, we've got it right here. It's amazing what happens when we hear it from the person. It's like, wow, there's no condemnation. Then why do I feel condemned? Because shame somehow has been able to usurp the place of truth. And it becomes the filter by which we see and create and live and relate to God. Mm. <sighs> we live in years of agony because of our shame. But there's a great hope. And it's, it's not shame-based. It's truth-based. It's what God says about himself and what he says about us. And you know that we're still working in shame when we go to the scriptures and we don't look for what he says about us and about him. We try to find something that will contradict this. Oh, I'm sure somewhere God says something bad about me. I'm sure God believes. And so our whole pursuit of the scripture is almost like the Pharisees. We're looking for a way to entrap a good God and a good father who loves his children and because we see and relate to him through our, our shame filter, we've got to find a scriptural foundation that we can come in agreement with and believe that he is not good, at least all the time. He's not fully good towards me. That's the way my mind works. And I thought, man, this, this stuff is too good to be true. I'm sure... I can find a scripture verse that I can counteract this position that's being proposed. And uh, I thought, why would I want to do that? Because I'm functioning out of shame. It's like, oh, oh. I still am trying to relate to God out of a shame-based filter instead of a love-based, instead of living from the room of grace. Mm. Continuing allowing God to remove the veil. See, we don't get 
there like that. It's, it's a maturation process. But the maturing process is a process whereby we let more and more light come into those areas where shame has, has pulled the curtains. And it's like we give the Holy Spirit permission to pull the curtains and widen and undo the blinds so that the sunlight can come in. And the more light we see, the more we're able to embrace and the more we're able to develop. There is never in, in, in any sense with God that he's saying, come on, jump. You know, there, there's never a performance trap with him. He knows us. He knows how we're made. He knows the illumination that we have. He knows everything about us. And he is just patient, forbearing, loving, waiting for more light to come so that we can embrace it, so that we can believe, so that we can receive, so that we can know him more. And then he waits for us to get to the next and he waits for the next and he just continually forbears, introduces his grace in all sorts of different ways, reveals truth to us and causes us to know how wonderful he is because he thinks you're wonderful. He's quite taken with you. I think he's especially fond of this one. Mm-hmm. What does shame look like in relationship? Well, when we look at shame in relationship, and I'm going way over, but I, 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 let's just get this done. So we're ready for Easter. Because I want us, to, if we could be shame-free for Easter, would that just be a great way? So slide seven, we'll probably have to, ask what shame looks like in a relationship. Well, shame does this. Do I measure my closeness to God by how little I'm sinning or by my trust that to the extent that the Father loves Jesus, he loves me? See, I think that's why when I read uh, John 17 and the high priestly prayer of Jesus, I just go nuts. It's, It's one of my favorites of all the scripture because there he talks about how much he loves us how much he wants us to know that. Do I see myself primary as a saved sinner or a saint who still sins? When I talk to God, do I spend more time rehearsing my failures or enjoying his presence? Here I am, Lord, I blew it again. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, and, and that's appropriate when you've just blown it. Go ahead and come and confess because he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for that. But he has another reason why he wants you in his presence. He wants to spend time with you. Am I drawn to serve authors and preachers who challenge me to get serious about my sin? or those who encourage me to trust in this new identity in me. In my free Methodist days, I would have people in the congregation who would come up and say, if you don't make me squirm, you're not really preaching. <laughs> if I don't feel condemned, something's wrong with your preaching. And I was just thinking, listen, you don't know who you're talking to. I got the gift of criticism. You know, I've got a special anointing to point out the log in other people's eyes. You want me to develop that? Oh, I'll be the best preacher you've ever seen. Huh. 
Praise God, we get delivered from some of that stuff. How about all of it? Let's get delivered from all of it. Am I drawn to messages telling me I haven't done enough? Or those that remind me who I am so that I am free to live out this life God's given me? There's something that we we feel like we deserve to be punished. And unfortunately, when, when that hasn't been healed and we're in the pulpit, we use that in our proclamation to make everybody feel like they should be punished. And uh, that's why when Danny Silk first, I I read his, uh, I heard his message, unpunishable. I thought, heresy. Until the Lord did the work. And then I thought, oh, Jesus. I need to understand this more because I, 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 my shame keeps me from fully embracing this. Lord, continue. And so he, he has. He continues and he's still continuing. I'm not there yet, but I'm on my, I'm on, I, I think I'm in, in the right direction, heading there. Do I believe that one day I may achieve pleasing to God? Or am I convinced I'm already fully changed and fully pleasing? Hmm. Most of us, we, we, want, we want to earn it. So we're not quite there yet. You know, and some of this kind of, when you look at some of this and you see the fundamental heart posture, it almost goes into our eschatology. Those that want to go through the tribulation to prove how much they love God. You know? It's fine with me if we're out of here before everything. <laughs> That's fine with me. Uh, is it hard? Is, is my hard effort being spent preoccupied with sin or in expressing and receiving love from others? Oh boy, what a telltale sign. Do I trust disciplines to make me strong or grace to strengthen me? Now there's nothing wrong with spiritual disciplines, but our motive behind why we do what we do is everything. If we use spiritual disciplines, hoping that they'll make us more acceptable to God, not. Mm. Do I believe that God is not interested in changing me? Because he already has. (laughs) Do I read the Bible as you ought, you should, why can't you, when will you, or you can This is who you now are. Wow. Might as well go through my whole notes. I've already taxed you long enough. It may feel like a gamble to you, but it's no gamble to God. God has shown all of his cards, revealing breathtaking protection. He says, in essence, What if I tell them who they really are now? What if I take away any element of fear? What if I tell them I will always love them? That I love them right now as much as I love my only son? What if I tell them there are no logs of past offenses? Of how little they pray? 
or how often they have let me down? What if I tell them they are actually righteous right now? What if I tell them I'm crazy about them? What if I tell them if I'm their savior, they're going to heaven no matter what? It's a done deal. What if I tell them they have a new nature? They are saints, not saved sinners. What if I tell them I actually live in them now, my love, power, and nature at their disposal? What if I tell them they don't have to put on masks, (laughs) that they don't need to pretend we're close? What if they knew that? What if they knew that when they messed up, I'll never retaliate. What if they were convinced bad circumstances aren't my ways of evening the score? What if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how little they sin, but how much they allow me to love them? Will you allow Jesus to love all of you? What if I tell them They can hurt my heart, but I'll never hurt theirs. What if I tell them they can open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? (laughs) What if I tell them there is no secret agenda, no trap door? What if I tell them it isn't about their self-effort, but about allowing me to live my life through them? Consider we have been told. Let's pray. Father, we can't even begin to articulate how good and wonderful and beautiful you are. We've sung about it this morning. You're so glorious. You're so wonderful. You're so beautiful that there's not words to adequately even give expression. But I pray today that in the name of Jesus, a grace would be released on this little congregation that would reveal and remove shame from us so that we can worship the true living God. We ask for forgiveness for all the different ways in which we've misrepresented and we've even related to you based on those misrepresentations, those shame-based understandings of you. And Lord, this is, this is so overwhelming to even allow ourselves to believe that you truly are this amazing and that you've truly, truly done for us everything that you've done, that we now have the DNA of Jesus in us. You've made us a new creation of which he is the first of many sons and daughters. And we constantly look at our caterpillar legs And it's so hard to believe that the wings of a butterfly are ours. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do something among us today that would cause us to understand forever loved by a love that secures us at every level of wounding, of fear, of anxiety, every level of shame, every level of doubt. I pray, let the love of God explode among us and let deception and shame be removed to the glory and praise of Jesus. I thank you, Father, for all the ways that you know how to individually tailor your loving, healing path for us. I thank you for those that you've taken into counseling and that you've continued to reveal things from the past that brings freedom and truth and helps you to be seen as you truly are so that they can be seen as they truly are. And I thank you for every, every way. I thank you for those that are able to hear and receive and embrace truth because they've seen you and they know you and they love you. And I pray, Father, that there would be a greater, greater intimacy among us as a congregation, as a community of faith, not where we have to try to fit in so that we can belong, but because we belong, Lord, you've made us a family. And so, Father, I pray for a greater grace than we've ever known. I pray for uh, the grace to see the glorious maturation process individually laid out for each one of your sons and daughters. Keep us from cookie-cutter discipleship. Keep us from uh, expectations and, and, and a community uh, that measures by performance. May we know the joy of a grace-filled love community. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.